0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode with the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Dr. Georgia Sarvan, who has written a brilliant book called Degrees of Difficulty, How Women's Gymnastics Rose to Prominence and Fell from Grace, which was published by the University of Illinois Press in 2021. In this book, Georgia Servan has produced one of the absolute first books, and in my opinion, a really great book, to examine the history of women's gymnastics as an international sport. So this is in the context of international sport and global politics, looking at the social norms that have been constructed within the sport. So it looks inwardly at the sport itself, and Dr. Servan's going to share some great perspectives, I'm sure, on her own experience in the sport and how it led to this research as well as looking at the role that the sport has played um, in global politics over a number of decades. This was an absolutely brilliant book to read. I cannot recommend it enough, and I'm thrilled that Dr. Georgia Servant is here to speak with us today. So thank you very much for sharing your time.
0: Thank you so much for having me, and also thank you for such a such a lovely introduction. I'm, I'm glad you liked the book.
1: <laughs> I really did. Um, and one of the first things that sort of gripped me about it was... At the very beginning, even in the preface, where you describe your own experience where you were a gymnast in the West, but had former Soviet coaches, which gave you experience and an interest in examining the Cold War impact on the development of women's gymnastics as a sport. So I was wondering if you could briefly share with the audience how you came to write this book.
0: Yeah, so um, I was an international gymnast for years in, in New Zealand um, and my coaches emigrated from the Soviet Union in the 1990s um, and when they came here they, um, they could almost exclusively say yes and no and that's it and that's how they coached us and they slowly learned more English with us and we learned bits and pieces of Russian from them and they would kind of ask us, you know, what do we doing? What are we learning at school? And I remember talking to them about the Cold War at some point and they were really interested. Um, and whenever we went to international competitions, our coaches would just kind of, um, in like after training or competition time, just go and socialise with all of their friends because every country had Russian coaches there um, leading their teams. And so it kind of became clear to me that there was this massive Uh, immigration around the world um, at the end of the Cold War and I think part of the reason that um, those coaches had been able to get jobs is because the Soviet Union just dominated gymnastics throughout the Cold War. Um, You know we all idolized Russian gymnasts, Um, they were just seen as a level above everyone else and yeah so that's kind of the, the background for me. When I began this research for my PhD, which my book is based on, I, um, I wanted to combine my love of history and particularly like international politics and history and I, um, with my love of gymnastics. So I decided to use the Cold War as the lens through which I was going to look at women's gymnastics. And although the Cold War is really global, like it's the key players are the USSR and the USA. Those are the countries that have been the most dominant in women's gymnastics since it began until, until now. Um, and as I started this, uh, kind of, um, turning this idea around in my head, I also realized my background as a gymnast meant I could understand some of the jargon and the culture, and I had a bit of a sense of who to interview. So it kind of, uh, the doors were already open for me and it was a real advantage that I could kind of translate and open the sport up for other researchers, um, but also, I, uh, this is one thing I try to grapple with in my preface, is that I'm also acutely aware that my experience as a gymnast and my love for the sport has created some blind spots, you know, things I maybe took for granted. Um, So I wanted to kind of highlight that or alert readers to that possibility too. Um, yeah, so my book is a very significantly redeveloped, rewritten version of my my PhD. And I, I work outside academia, so I wrote it um entirely in evenings and weekends. Um, but I just I really wanted to give people a better understanding of women's gymnastics, you know, a starting point for looking critically at the sport, why it is, how it is, and using that to discuss what could be better. So I hope my book can be used to open some conversations in gymnastics and um, yeah, but that, that's also just the gymnastics side. I also wanted to know. I think you kind of noted it in the introduction as well, that in the academic literature, there's hardly anything about gymnastics from a historical perspective. Um, scholars have shown that sport is, you know, played this really important role in international relations and history. Um, so I kind of wanted to insert gymnastics into that conversation too and, and, and see what gymnastics role was there. Um, I think, you know, although sports sport history is like a growing discipline it's often been dismissed as trivial because people see sport as a leisure activity but that's also why it's so important to study because it forms a massive part of our culture and our society and it reflects it too so um those are all the kind of I guess the features that are swirling around in my head when I came to to write this book.
1: Amazing um I really like what you said about the idea that it's opening up a conversation. I think that's really true. That was very much my experience reading the book was, oh, wow, this could be a whole jumping off point for this, or oh, this lays great groundwork for that. Um, so in fact, that was my next question is one of the things that I feel this book might raise for some people, and um, particularly casual fans of gymnastics, is in your first chapter, you lay out the philosophies of exercise and sport, and the history of the organization that governs international gymnastics, the FIG, and women's artistic gymnastics as an actual sport. Um, And I figured that for many casual viewers of gymnastics today, it might be surprising to learn that Olympic female gymnasts used to primarily perform graceful static poses in flouncy dresses. So in your examination of the history of women's artistic gymnastics, after years of you yourself being a gymnast, in the much more modern system, what do you think are some of the most important things about gymnastics history that gymnasts today, coaches, spectators, et cetera, should be more aware of when we look at the sport as it is now?
0: I think for me, I'm just amazed by how central gender ideals are to gymnastics. It's what the whole sport was designed around. Um, so like when women were first allowed to compete, people were concerned that any kind of vigorous physical activity, at- activity, let alone something competitive like sport, would make them lose their femininity, which meant their attractiveness, their softness, and their ability to bear children. So women's gymnastics was really carefully designed to um, to place value on typically feminine traits like gracefulness, softness, Flowing and floating kind of movements that appear to be done with no effort. It was a way to, um, it did this to, to show that women could really participate in sport without, um, losing that femininity. So on the one hand, you know, this is a quite a strategic way to design a sport to open it up to women. But on the other hand, it's kind of um, limited where the sport is at now over the twentieth centuries. Cause we're still really um committed to those original values and we see that in things like women being required to do floor routines with music when men aren't and almost every aspect of women's gymnastics is still imbued with those gendered considerations so like men's apparatus were considered too difficult so they were modified for women both physically altered and with different performance requirements um, and obviously we still have those apparatus today so things like parallel bars that was obviously a modified version of the men's parallel bars you put one bar down one bar up Um, and originally women would stand on the lower bar and use the upper bar for like balance and just do poses like a you know a scale balance or stand on one leg and that was how it started and you know slowly it evolves people start swinging and that kind of thing but that origin is is still there that's why the apparatus is different um it's the reason that like the beam was added for women as well and if you think about the outfits as well so women women started off as you say in these kind of long kind of dress collotte kind of um things and began to offer less and less coverage as the deck as the century progressed um And this was to kind of showcase the body more and more as a way of demonstrating femininity when the movements changed. So there's always this goal of demonstrating femininity. Men's outfits didn't go through such a drastic change. They basically have always worn pants or shorts and a top. And um, I think that is because for them, it's always been about what they can do more than how they look doing it. Whereas for women, there has always been this concern about showing their femininity throughout.
1: Yeah, I think that really comes across um, throughout your book. And one of the aspects of that shift that really was quite striking to me um, was you talk about how, again, in sort of early gymnastics, not only was the clothing different, not only was the type of movement different, but who was doing Olympic women's gymnastics was different. It was women. It, the average age was late 20s, 30s. Um, some of them had children. Some of them had children and kept competing uh, they looked physically more like women that had gone through puberty, um, and obviously today's gymnasts. It's somehow massive headlines when an American gymnast is not 16. Um, when you look at the just visually, you look at female gymnasts, and it's about oh look how short they are. Um, you know, have they gone through puberty delayed, etc. And you demonstrate that this isn't necessarily an accidental trend. This was. Uh, marked perhaps initially by Olga Corbett and Nadia Komenich, um, but then became a really strong trend in the US, even though maybe it started or at least became most popular initially in the USSR. And something that I was really struck by is in your second chapter, you persuasively link the rise of child athletes in the US in particular to the rules for amateurism in sport, which is not a connection I had ever made, but makes a lot of sense. And essentially, you argue, if I understand it correctly, that the US could get all the benefits of an elite athlete um, and have them receive support in terms of housing, meals, life admin, etc., without getting into trouble in terms of international rules of who can participate in the Olympics at that time. And they can do all of that if the athletes are children and receive all the support from their parents, rather than get paid as adults being elite athletes. So that was really interesting in and of itself, as well as this kind of bigger question about the transition from grown women who also you know, have more maturity, more sense of agency to children as the primary athletes in the sport. So could you expand a bit on kind of why that transition happened and what were the influencing factors?
0: Yeah, I think this is a really good example of how a study of women's genetics can tell us so much about society, about gender roles and family life and work and money. So in the Soviet Union, athletes were subsidized to practice their sports and if they were really good, their living arrangements would be taken care of and they were offered like prize money for winning um, world and Olympic level medals. Um, But this was against the amateur rules. Um, So in the US, there wasn't such a system. And it was based on individual means instead. So combine that with ideals about gender roles, you know, adult women were expected to marry, have children and care for the home, not pursue their athletic dreams, which was seen as masculine. Who would take care of domestic life if women were at the gym? In addition, gymnastics in the US also has a really um, a history of being used to prepare women for uh, domestic life. So, in the 19th century, women did light exercises designed to prepare them for motherhood. You know, taking care of the home and instilling republican values into their children. And because this was a kind of preparatory um, exercise for for adult womanhood. It meant that it was actually girls and young women who were doing gymnastics. So combine that long history with the idea that women doing gymnastics would mean their duties at home were left with no one to do them, and we're left with children and teenagers being the ideal candidates for gymnastics in the US. They're looked after by their family who feed and clothe and cook for them. They don't usually have any caring responsibilities for others at that stage, and they have all this while remaining amateurs as, um, as the rules dictated. So it's a very practical solution to um, the amateur rules. But also, the shift toward younger gymnasts isn't just because of amateurism, um, particularly when we look at that shift happening um, in other parts of the world. It's also related to the professionalization of coaching um, in around the 60s and 70s, uh, gymnastics becoming more acrobatic at the same time, and youthfulness and cuteness becoming an increasingly valuable currency of femininity. And I think it's those factors that explain the shift towards younger athletes in other parts of the world. But um, I think also, Will, we can maybe come back to some of those those questions around new forms of femininity and, and acrobatics.
1: Yeah, in fact, I'd, I'd love to ask that as my next question um, because you argue that the increased cuteness of women's gymnastics is in a lot of ways not an accident, right? That it was a specific deployment of cuteness and smiles and hair bows, to ensure that as women's gymnastics became more acrobatic, that the moves became so much more difficult, that that didn't mean that women's gymnastics was somehow a threat to masculinity or was no longer sufficiently feminine to be acceptable. And you argue that this cuteness therefore also led to female gymnasts in a lot of cases being taken less seriously and somehow that that led to the rise of male coaches Um, who were increasingly brought in as the gymnastics got harder. And so the skills that they had from coaching men's gymnastics was more applicable to women's gymnastics. It led to male coaches kind of be given this title of the geniuses or the power behind the throne or that kind of thing, and reducing the agency of the women actually performing the gymnastic skills. Um, So I was wondering if you could sort of tell us a bit more about what you think was responsible for kind of this shift from focusing on the gymnast to focusing on the coach. Was it related to this idea of amateurism? Um, was it about media attitudes? You know, what, why did we get this kind of shift from the gymnast to the
0: male coach? So, um, so it's around the same time as this shift towards younger athletes happens. Uh, there are more male coaches appearing in the sport. And it's around this time that coaching starts to become a profession, not just in gymnastics, but in general. So before uh, in most sports, you um, most sports were kind of, in the West at least, volunteer run. Um, and you anything professional was more like in a physical education class. In the 60s and 70s, coaching was something that you could start to study at university. Uh, it was mostly men who were doing that. And when they started looking for jobs, um, they didn't just look in men's sport. They looked in women's as well because... You know that there's that way. There's more jobs for them to to find, so <clears throat> that happened. That affected gymnastics. So we have these people who are who are formally educated and looking for coaching roles in women's sport, including gymnastics. Around the same time, the FIG began to relax rules uh, that prevented men from accompanying female athletes in like competition floors. Um, so it's a kind of a mix of those broader social factors I think that um, I guess explain explain the increased role of male coaches in women's gymnastics Um, you also kind of highlighted it before it's as the sport became more or as the women's sport became more acrobatic that was also seen as more scientific and requiring more um, yeah I guess more like structured serious training to learn those acrobatics understanding of um i don't know biophysics and angles that you need to hit to get the right height for that element and that kind of science has always been seen as a as a masculine domain so that also um that boosted men's kind of arguments for why they should be involved in women's gymnastics as well. So women coaches tended to get relegated to doing the women's only events um, like beam and dance work on floor. For the other apparatus, uh, men could argue that, you know, they could draw on their long experience teaching vault, tumbling, bars um, and men's gymnastics. That was quite transferable to women's gymnastics. But um, so it's, uh, I think it's a bit frustrating because the idea is that that women's gymnastics was a space for women to be not just athletes but you know uh, coaches as well like this unique space for them to really um, further further their own involvement in sport and then gradually men started to take up more and more of that space and we still see that today like most head coaches for um, international competitions are men but actually like it's a lot of the time the women are coaching all four apparatus and the men are just leading on on two um so yeah I think also and, and to bring this back to the uh the shift in age some researchers have commented that as more men became involved in coaching women's gymnastics, they selected athletes who, who more closely resembled the boys and men they were used to working with, and they did this by working with prepubescent girls who didn't present the challenges of hips and breasts and weaker strength-to-weight ratios. Um, so that also plays a role in the, the shift towards younger athletes. Um I've also heard some coaches argue that smaller and lighter bodies are easier to teach acrobatics to because you can physically lift them through the skills um that are required as a training method. Um others have also said how you know children don't have as much fear so they will try these like scary new acrobatics more easily. Uh, but I think what both of these justifications point to is this fundamental fact that children are easier to control than adults, and I think this this again is connected to femininity because women were long encouraged to be passive and docile in their movement and behaviour, and the same kind of unquestioning obedience has also traditionally been expected of children. And I think in the um, in the girl gymnast we see these expectations compound. Um, Lastly, I'll just talk quickly about uh, cuteness. So yeah, you kind of highlighted it before as well. Women deploy cuteness to kind of mask the strength and risk and effort that um, acrobatics commanded. And again, like acrobatics are seen as a masculine domain, uh, not just in terms of the coaching and the thinking uh, required to, to teach it, but also in the kind of movements it required, it required muscles, it required risk, and those were not seen as feminine. So women kind of masked their foray into acrobatics by acting cute, which is a kind of femininity that draws on traits like youthfulness and playfulness and innocence. And soon though they, they weren't just acting cute, they were actually children. And if you, um, a, a way of looking at this is that youthfulness has always held a lot of currency when we're talking about femininity and, You only need to look at, you know, the ads that uh, we see for women for anti-aging products. You know, that's a a very simple example of this. But um, it's, I think this, these are all the factors that kind of really cement this shift towards younger athletes in the 60s and 70s.
1: Thank you. That's a brilliant answer to discuss how all the different things kind of play into each other and create such a distinct shift. Um, And now that we've sort of spoken about the gymnasts and the coaches, the other sort of big category for me is the FIGs, the Federation for International Gymnastics, I think is the full title. Um, So they are the international organization that decides the rules for Olympics, for other big competitions, um, how things are going to be scored, what you can and cannot do. They sort of dictate all of this. And yet, um, I was really interested in the book in two areas where you kind of talk about the FIG not being as influential or not being able to necessarily um, get what they want out of sort of the way the sport is going. And the first one to sort of stay on this aspect of amateurism um, was you talk about how this shift from adult women and sort of gracefulness and the more static pose, the less risky acrobatics um, was actually kind of what the FIG wanted and that they weren't always in favor of the more move towards the daredevil and the smaller gymnasts and the younger gymnasts. Um, So what, how did they play into this shift? You know, why, despite the fact that they're in charge of the rules, why did we end up with this movement anyway?
0: Mm. So that's a really interesting question. So they, um, they, as you say, we're not we're not in favour of increasing acrobatics, and in their um, records from their their meetings, it's often a point of discussion, and they they're talking about how they don't like it, how are they going to stop it, um, and you know, at one point in the seventies, they commissioned this um, uh, like a physical education researcher to look into the the physically. Harmful effects that acrobatics would have, because um, they were really worried about the um, physiological consequences for women. But it's, I mean, so that might seem quite um, caring, but also like they weren't really worried about the physiological consequences for men, as far as I've seen. So it still kind of reveals this um, underlying assumption about women's weaknesses, right? But this this researcher was basically said you know we it's fine there's no physiological um risks and honestly this is the expected trajectory of sport (laughs) of your sport um and so it looks like the FIG was hoping to use that research as the basis to um take a hard line and ban acrobatics for women but it didn't pan out like that and so they continue to discuss other ways of um, preventing it. They talk about um, potentially outlawing uh, some moves that Olga Corbett did. So like the backflip on beam, um, you know, doing it, standing up on the bars and doing a backflip there as well. Um, but it's almost like that ship has already sailed when they're, when they're talking about this. So, um, you know, Corbett threatens to leave the sport and, you know, there's, um, I think there's some stuff that goes on behind the scenes with, uh, in terms of like Soviet officials within the FIG kind of um, talking to their colleagues and stuff. And so that um, kind of outright banning of certain skills just it doesn't happen and more and more athletes keep doing it and um yeah so the fig just kind of the window closes and it can't do it but then at the same time the fig is kind of is partly responsible for this increase as well increase in acrobatics as well so they're asking athletes to perform like they're giving them points for doing increasingly original skills and the limits of what can be done you know, just on the floor, um, using simple slow movements, those are those limits are kind of being reached. And so um, athletes do start, you know, doing airborne things. And it's easy for them to look at men's gymnastics to get inspiration for some of those like original or like new elements. Um, and also the FIG is requiring athletes to do a certain number of difficult and acrobatic skills in their routines on the beam and uh, the floor so you know even though it's not a large number of acrobatic skills they're requiring it's often just like one to three Um, even just having those requirements in there kind of indicates that the FIG is also pushing some of some of this um, trajectory too so yeah it's it's a very it's a tricky dynamic that seems to be More more than anything, led by the innovations that we see from gymnasts and coaches, though, and supported to some extent by the FIG, and maybe against their own better judgment.
1: (laughs) Well, another area that um, has this sort of interesting dynamic, where the FIG is sort of on one side and the other, or maybe can't make up their mind. It's hard for me to tell. Um, But you explore the FIG's focus on amateurism and how that has had financial consequences, not just for the FIG as an organization, though it has had those, but also on the sport globally. And I was wondering if you could talk us through a little bit about what is their focus? Why are they so interested in amateurism? What kind of impact has it had? um, And what maybe should they be doing instead?
0: Yeah, so amateurism was like a core tenet of olympic sport for most of the 20th century um and it meant that athletes couldn't receive money um for anything related to their sport not just training but like profiting off their um their image uh related to sport um and the FIG is uh it's it's one of the top Olympic sports not just in terms of popularity but you know it's been there since the beginning and it it, there's I found a quote saying um you know we want to remain at the at the bosom of the Olympic family like it really considers itself to be yeah the heart of Olympic sports one of the originals and just so it's a lot of its rules and decisions are made with a view to to being um I don't know, like maybe you would describe it as like the favorite child within the Olympic family. Um, so, and you kind of see that play out as other sports around the 80s and 90s begin to become more professional, to allow um, professional athletes within their sports to offer prize money, that kind of thing. And women, not just women's gymnastics, gymnastics in general, just remains really reluctant to do that. It sees it as... Um, departing from the original values of the sport and the Olympic Games, and it, it does not support this shift. And it's also concerned that um, allowing professional, professional athletes and coaches and managers in the sport is going to lead it down a dangerous path of pressuring people to perform Um, beyond their capability um, of turning the sport into a bit of a circus. Um, And so they have these kind of cultural concerns about it as well. But it does mean that the FIG is very reliant on the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, to sustain itself because it doesn't have its own league. Um, it, It was running its world championships at a loss um, and it was relying on money from the uh, International Olympic Committee to to stay afloat, um, and it got it got really tight in the nineties. So that it's at that point that it starts to, uh, I guess, redevelop its its economic model. It still is really reliant on Olympic money, um, but it gets a large portion of that money because it's one of the top three sports and um, in terms of spectators and that's how the money is apportioned the more popular the sport the more money it gets Um, so in the so it's still relying on Olympic money but also in the 90s it starts to do things like world cups Uh, that might be the early 2000s actually but it increases like a, a league of World Cups as well as a way to get more professionals it um more spectators sorry so the FIG has been making these efforts for the last two decades to increase its spectator appeal it um you know removed compulsories compulsory routines as a way of um marketing itself better to to audiences a shorter competition with more variety that kind of thing um so if we're talking about what the FIG could do now to to increase its appeal. Um, I think uh, some kind of league would be quite helpful to build spectatorship. And if you look at the NCAA gymnastics in the US, that's kind of what's going on there. Um, The money required to build gymnastics and look after gymnasts comes from spectators and advertisers. So that's why it's essential to build up that base and kind of appeal to um, those interests. My personal preference for gymnastics to increase, increase its spectator appeal, though, is to add in mixed gender competition formats. And I'm really passionate about this because it gets us away from these outdated gender ideals in the modern era. Meaning, like, no matter how you identify, you could perform on any apparatus. You kind of self-select into... Um, what you what you want to do and I think because there's unique performance requirements on each apparatus for example like showing a full split in the air during a leap on beam I don't think the typical criticism that men would totally dominate is actually going to stand and I think with mixed teams it would also be really hard to tell who's going to win like anything could happen um, and that makes for an exciting competition And it also moves us away from the formality that gymnastics often has and other sports don't. So I think that would make the sport um, more accessible all around. And I I would love to see some moves in this direction to kind of modernize and reinvigorate the sport and win some new fans too.
1: As a longstanding gymnastics fan, but as someone who's never had the coordination or the guts to actually do any... Um, I can also say that from a spectator's point of view, it would be really fun to watch uh, gymnastics without separating between men's and women's. Um, There are some really cool events on the men's side. Um, And if you go on Twitter or Instagram, there are some amazing people who identify as men who do really cool things on traditional female apparatuses. Um, So that would be very cool to see. Um, But maybe turning a little bit to the darker side of gymnastics, um, those of us who follow the sport, unfortunately, are aware that in the last few years, there have been some not great things um, coming forward about our sport and about the institutions that have enabled amazing things to happen, but also some really not so great things. Um, And one of them that you talk about in the book, which I found really interesting because uh, it happened over such a long time period that it feels like we maybe haven't fully analyzed it or thought about the implications. Is the idea of age falsification, which comes directly from switching from women to children, um, and rules put in place around how old you can be to compete at the Olympic level. And again, this goes back to the idea of debates between what people, what gymnasts can do, what coaches want them to do, and what the FIG feels comfortable with. Um, And I found it really interesting your analysis of how the FIG treats the countries who are accused of age falsification at top meets like the Olympics, um, and how there doesn't seem to be a super standard policy, not just in terms of how accusations are investigated. Um, In one case, they investigated, what, 10 years after the fact, Um, but also in terms of the kind of who gets punished. Is it the gymnast? Is it the coaches? Is it the federation of the country? Um, And also what kinds of punishments are sort of on the table as it were? So um, in particular, the difference between how Romania was treated uh, for accusations of age falsification or documented age falsification versus China, um, which had a team bronze medal taken away, which as any, I'm sure most listeners can imagine in sports is quite a strong punishment. Um, So can you talk a little bit more about kind of this difference in terms of the tension between the FIG and sort of enforcement, but also what it says maybe about racial issues in the sport?
0: Yeah, so I think um the the closest parallel is is potentially rules around doping, where there is a 10-year statute of limitations. Whereas when we're talking about age falsification, which is a similar level of cheating um in seriousness there's no statute of limitations um and it isn't clear like there's no i've not found any formal uh policies and at any point in history that talk about yeah when is the time period that this can be investigated how should it be investigated what are the what are the punishments on the table um but i've collected some evidence and kind of compared like how these incidents were um, were handled, and at a general level, uh, don't uh, doping sorry age falsification in Western countries like Romania, uh, no sorry not Western countries European countries like Romania has been seen as um, well. It hasn't really been investigated actually, and this is despite athletes themselves coming forward and saying my age was falsified, I was made to compete as a child masquerading as a teenager um, and you know this is all over the media and uh, you know maybe less than 10 years after the, those people were competing but it's just not investigated and if it is it's, um, it's not really seen as a systemic issue, it's seen as kind of outliers when actually like the number of people coming forward saying that their ages were falsified does indicate that it really was a systemic issue. Whereas uh, Asian countries, um, it's tended to be seen as a systemic issue. And, you know, those those countries have really been punished for it. It hasn't just been the athlete themselves that has been punished. Um, and so if you think here about in the 1990s, a uh, Korean gymnast was uh, found to have falsified her age and, you um, North Korea was banned from competing at uh, FIG events like world championships for the next um I think it was three years or something a a relatively short period of time um and with China as well so there the the story of age falsification there um came out about 10 years after uh, that team had won a bronze medal, and they um, there was a full investigation, and eventually that medal was withdrawn from the team. Um, the difference there is that that ev- that age falsification took place at the Olympics, and so the IOC here had some um, influence, I think, in how it should be investigated. It does explain that there is more of an investigation I think um but still it's it's a it's a different approach to what we've seen in other places um and you know I think the outcome was that it was seen as this one uh this one gymnast was seen to have falsified her age and it seems like if it her Chinese officials kind of um made her take the blame because if you and you know she said you know she has cheated blah 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 but if you think about it like how can a child attain or obtain government issued documents like passports to prove their own age like there's no way that this happens not on a systemic level (laughs) um but also frustratingly so that is that is a case where yeah the medal was withdrawn and cheating was I guess proven. It's frustrating that the media has often talked about Chinese cheating as as an ongoing thing, because other than that one incident, which China is not the only country to have an example of an incident, China is very often portrayed as still cheating, still age falsifying, and there's just there isn't any evidence for it, and there hasn't been any investigation into it. So, I think more than anything, this actually reflects a long history of. Uh, Western and European countries portraying Chinese people as sneaky and submissive and untrustworthy. Um, And so this is where I think we start to see these racial ideas in the sport, which I want to talk about a little bit more. So women's gymnastics, obviously, it's developed in Europe and uh, around European ideals about beauty and womanhood. And those are the foundation of the sport, um, which remained the foundation uh, throughout the 20th century. Um, and a good example of how we see that in the sport, uh, beyond, you know, issues about cheating is in the dance work that we see in gymnastics. So until the 1980s, uh, gymnasts had to work with a piano, drums, guitars, or other culturally significant instruments just weren't an option. And the movements that were rewarded were light and flowing and often based in ballet, which is a typically European practice. And although it wasn't prevented, other kinds of dance work, like like we see in many cultures around the world, would not have been rewarded and would have been seen as a bit gauche. So if you've seen those um, awesome viral hip hop routines over the last few years, you know, that's really, that's new and it's limited to college gymnastics. And even then we still note how original and unusual it is and you know, there's this brilliant scholar called um, Dr. Shani Bruno Shakur, and she has pointed out that even if we look at the rule book, we see a white gymnast. So every element that exists in gymnastics has this little illustration in the rule book. And although that figure is a nondescript outline, we see that she has straight hair that's pulled back into a ponytail, and that excludes the possibility of many non-white ethnicities. And it's her leotard that's shaded in while her skin is free of pigment. So even though this is intended to be a neutral illustration, we can see that it's the, again, these European standards remain the default way of thinking. And I don't, you know, I don't think this is intentional. I just don't think anyone has really thought about how um, central European ideals are to the sport no one's really questioned it and so I think given this background of kind of Euro privilege in gymnastics the differing responses to the FIG had to Chinese and Korean and Romanian cheating is a little bit clearer um yeah and I think lastly you know, as I said before, the media has often characterised Asians as sneaky or cheating, and I think pressure around this may be compelled a different kind of action from the FIG as well.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Thank you for drawing all of those things together. Um, I think it really clarifies that an area for future improvement, hopefully in policies around the sport, is clarifying exactly what the rules and procedures are around things like age falsification. Um, what punishments are on the table versus not uh, clearly is something that hasn't really been worked out yet. Um, But I want to transition now from asking you to diagnose all the issues with current gymnastics and where they came from historically to the Cold War analysis lens of your book, which I think was really, really interesting. It goes back to what you're saying right at the beginning of the interview, of injecting gymnastics into this growing idea of sports history, and especially around the importance of sports diplomacy. Um, And in the third chapter of your book, you show that gymnastics has been for a long time a key part of sports diplomacy, with um, USSR athletes visiting the White House and having photo ops when that would never have happened at that point in time between political leaders of the East and West. Um, it was okay somehow through gymnastics and it gave the West insight into the East and vice versa. It was kind of this window of opportunity. In fact, you call it in the book flick-flack diplomacy, which was brilliant. Um, So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about sort of gymnastics as this point of cooperation in the Cold War, but also sometimes a point of conflict as well. Yeah,
0: so um, there's there's a lot of kind of his points of interaction through gymnastics throughout the Cold War. And it's it's interesting to think about when a lot of the nations involved are kind of at odds, not talking to each other on a diplomatic level or political level. But then, you know, you have these these people, these coaches, these gymnasts coming together in one spot and of course they talk to each other and you know they're speaking different languages, but um, I guess that's the nature of human communication. Is there, you can still form those bonds. So we see things. Um, we see things also kind of develop further. We see coaching exchanges where maybe a Soviet coach is brought over to somewhere like Australia or um, Great Britain to share some of their knowledge about um, about their coaching practices, about techniques, and advancing gymnastics in those countries. That was also seen as really important um, for the Soviet Union to um, to kind of try and make friends with some of these countries and establish relationships, expand its network. Um, it's a it's a very important piece of um, Soviet kind of diplomatic outreach. Interestingly, I spoke to someone who I asked about those um, those tours to or those coaching sorry coaching exchanges, and they said we did it everywhere, but we, we would never do it to the US. Like that was just <laughs> a, a next level. We didn't want to give them any tips about <laughs> how to improve their gymnastics. So I think that really demonstrates, you know, how the Cold War uh, is a really, it's a global thing, but it also means that certain countries are treated a bit differently in that, in that context. Um, however, that's just talking about coaching. There was also um, these kind of, publicity tours uh, where gymnasts like Olga Korba and uh, kind of a team of others were sent around the world to do these like spectacular kind of shows rather than competitions and they were a form of diplomacy that worked both ways. So on the one hand like Soviet and Romanian gymnasts were communicating a lot about, about the ideals and ideologies of their countries through their performances so they would draw on uh, their movements would draw on traditions like the Russian ballet and circus, and they would emphasize like the physical freedom with which the, the people moved. Um, and the goal of this was to, to win new fans from foreign publics. But on the other hand, during their stays, the athletes themselves became fans of um, aspects of American culture. Their hosts intentionally exposed them to things like movies and pizza and denim jeans and then Corbett, Olga Corbett would gush about those things in the newspapers. Um, so kind of both ways, these tours are this real kind of hearts and minds exercise in sports diplomacy. Um, because of the, like, I'm based in New Zealand. So when I was doing some of this work, I, I couldn't look beyond the 1970s. Um, but I do think the the principles I've just described apply for a longer period and still actually work today. Um, so if you think, for example, about the most recent Olympics, gymnasts from different countries were all warning photos with Simone Biles and they were posting on each other's Instagrams. And this is a good example of citizen diplomacy, um, you know, where... We have these individuals reaching uh, across national borders and befriending people and forming relationships. The only thing is, it's really difficult to tell if that um, that is being harnessed by governments and if so, the effect that it's having today. Um, but I think you know that's the nature of foreign relations research. The records tend to be embargoed, so it's often not in, until a couple decades later that you can. Um, get a real understanding of, of those interactions and how they were being harnessed.
1: That's really interesting. Yeah, I do, I do wonder what the follow-up to your book would be in, say, 30 years um, to see what else we can discover. Um, so one thing also I was particularly interested in, you actually mentioned this in the book as part of the research process that was interesting, um, which was the lack of gymnast voices in the record. And how you found that when you were talking about the sport, when you were doing this research, when you were asking people for interviews um, for this book, some people, even those within the gymnastics world, were confused about why you would want to talk to the gymnasts, um, who are, as you described, for quite a while now, primarily children when they're competing. Um, was that the most surprising part of the research process to you understanding the extent to which gymnasts themselves were not seen as agents or actors in the sport?
0: Mm. I've been asked this question a few times and you know I think it makes me feel a bit naive because I went into this not expecting to find things like allegations of score fixing and age falsification or or disregard of gymnast voices and I think some people might have expected that and I don't know like Um, I probably started this with a very optimistic view of the sport because of my own kind of love for it. But the lack of gymnast voices was really something that came out for me um, on reflection well into the project. And, um, you know, it was after I'd finished my PhD, I was working on making this a book and gymnasts were starting to come forward with claims of maltreatment and um, it kind of all clicked. And it it seems so obvious now, but, you know, this lack of willingness to listen to gymnast views, I think, is... Very intimately connected with the way children's views have typically been disregarded too. They've been seen as fanciful and unreliable, partly because children are not always seen as full human beings. And I think gymnasts, like any child athletes, um, get hit by this sword twice because. Really talented athletes are also not seen as human. Their athletic feats are often justified by explaining that the athlete is superhuman, has amazingly large muscles or certain limbs or body proportions or an unusual air sense that makes them more than human. So on the physical skills front and on the age front, gymnasts have not always been seen as human. And I think that is that can explain why they have often been treated quite uh, inhumanely.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Unfortunately, mm. um, were there any other big
0: surprises in the research process for you? Uh, I think the kind of standout for me is i kind of talked about it before the just the significance of gender um, in the sport and throughout its history. Like I, you know, I was expecting it to some extent because um, obviously it's divided into women's gymnastics and men's gymnastics, but that's not so unusual, like across sports, um, there are you know women's divisions and men's divisions. Um, but it's, I, I was surprised by the fact that this is not just a division based on gender, it is the entire sport is designed around those gender ideals. That was um, a pretty big revelation for me. I have to say that I had exactly the same
1: response going into reading your book, was I was expecting it to talk about gender. um, And I knew I was like, okay, well, there's men's and women's and there's sparkly leotards and one and hair bows and things. Okay, that makes sense. And then really, for me, reading chapters one and two, in particular, were quite stunning how much it was designed that way. Um, I think that was the piece that I hadn't realized and really learned from reading your book. Um, So that, that was quite interesting. Um, and thank you. I've taken a lot of your time, but I'm sure that our audience will be as interested in this book as I was. Um, so my last question is simply: um, What are you up to today? Where can people find you? What are you working on now?
0: Yeah, cool. So my um, mm. well, my book is out, and you know you can buy it online at like Amazon, Book Depository, and actually most bookstores as well can can order it for you. Um. And my previous book on biographies of women in sport with my friend, Claire Nicholas, who's actually a visiting scholar at King's College right now. Um, It can also be bought at all of those places. And all of my journal articles, newspaper articles and podcasts are linked on my website. So that's where you can find my work. Um, What I'm up to now is um, I've spent a lot of the last year working with and advocating for people who have experienced harm in gymnastics. And I'm, I'm thinking of finding a way to highlight those people's stories as um, my next piece of writing. I want to kind of um, have them, their voices at the forefront. But I also want to go beyond gymnastics. You know, it was a great place for me to start as a sports historian, but there's a lot more to explore. Um, but with both of those things, I don't work in academia, so it, they're both um, kind of extracurricular hobbies at this point. Um, my I spend most of my time as a government historian now, and I work in... Indigenous Reconciliation with the Crown, uh, Māori Crown Relations. Um, for those who understand the context in New Zealand. so, But I, I raise it because I'd really like to connect the thinking and the processes in that reconciliation space with um, how sports deal with people who have been harmed. I think there are some really beautiful parallels and I feel like a lot of sports are struggling to deal with this right now. Um, and so... Yeah, that that would be a nice way to connect my my worlds at the moment. That sounds
1: amazing, all of it. I really hope that we can continue to read your work and hear about your work. So I will definitely be keeping an eye out for your next thing. Um, And hopefully if you've got another book at some point, we can have you back on the podcast. Um, But thank you so much for sharing your time. Uh, I really cannot recommend this book enough to our listeners, whether you are someone interested in international relations and history and you've never really thought about sport, um, I think this would be a great lens through which to view the Cold War in a different way. For those of you who love gymnastics and love sport and find that really interesting, this is a way of looking at this sport that I think everyone is pretty familiar with. As you said, it's one of the most popular sports in the world, again, through a lens that you may not have realized before. Um, And it may sound like the Cold War is just history and it was a long time ago, but this book does a really brilliant job of helping us understand how something that may have happened a while ago has impacts that were important then. And these are still things that we're living with today. So really recommend the book. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Um, Dr.
0: Georgia Sarvan. Thank you so much for having me. This has been been great. You've been lovely. Um, Yeah, thank you.